The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. Our journey through literature takes us around the world. Next stop, India and China. Coming up today on the History of Literature. Hey, hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for joining me today. We are continuing our little run of thanks to countries around the world, courtesy of the chart trackers at Chartable and Apple Podcasts. Thanking countries where we have reached number one in the books podcast category. Now, this is a little bit like a song reaching number one. It doesn't mean when you are listening to this that we're still there at the top of the charts. But they have a peak position, and if that says we hit number one, we are thanking the country. So far, we've thanked Croatia and Norway. Do we have another one? Indeed, we do. The Bahamas, that sovereign paradise in the Atlantic Ocean, known for its warm and winterless climate and its unsurpassed taste in literary podcasts. Thank you, my Bahamian friends. I hope to visit you soon. So, a good show today. Let's get straight to it. We have as our main course an interview with Jeremy Tiang, a translator who hails from Singapore. He's been working on a wonderful book, a classic of Chinese literature, a contemporary classic, I am quick to add, because there are very few books like this, at least very few that have made their way to English. It's not a throwback to some earlier dynasty, or a collection of poetry like those that came out of the Tang Dynasty or Tang Dynasty or Song Dynasty. It isn't literature written in English by Chinese expatriates like Ha Jin or friend of the show, Yang Wang. And it isn't a work of nonfiction about growing up in China like the famous work Wild Swans by Zheng Chang and books in that vein. It's not a book by a Chinese American looking back to the motherland, perhaps several generations past, and it's not something from the last 20 years either, which has seen a great rise in Chinese novels being translated. It's more of a time capsule than that. In other words, it's a novel set in China, in Chinese, by a Chinese writer who has never left China. It was written in the 1980s and set in the 1980s, and it's a classic. How many books like that have you read? For me, this was the first. What was life like in 1982 in China, after the Cultural Revolution and before Tiananmen Square. This book gives us a window into that world, and like all good literature, it gives us a window into something bigger than that world as well. Universal truths located in the particular. Lu Xin Wu is the author. He's a revered figure in China as this book won the prestigious Mao Dun Prize. Lu is himself a scholar and a writer of short stories. His earlier works helped inaugurate what became known as scar literature, which we will talk about with Jeremy. Jeremy Chang, our guest today, the writer and translator. But first, we have a sneak preview for you. I had the great good fortune to talk to Mira Sundara Rajan, who has published a collection of writings by C. Subramania Bharati another fine offering from Penguin 
modern classics. Bharati is a legendary figure in India, an Indian national poet who lived from 1882 to 1921. He was a visionary, writing during the period of British colonial rule, of course. He nevertheless championed racial equality, women's freedom, and cultural revival in colonized countries. His thinking is dynamic, and his message is one of hope and humanist values. Bharati was in a dialogue with the greatest minds of his day, as well as those of the past, no stone left unturned by his wide-ranging and curious intelligence. And he was a, a brilliant poet as well. So, Mira, our first guest today, has a podcast out to accompany the book. It's called Bharati 100, as this book that came out commemorates the poet's 100th death anniversary, which happened last September. And the book is a collection of Bharati's writings in English. We will talk about that a bit with her, and then we'll have a second preview with her, and then we will have the full interview. So, there we go. Now, Professor Rajan lives in California. So, that's our trip around the world. We start with California. We come here to Crazy Town, which is where I am, Washington, D.C., to the Bahamas, to India, and from there we shall go to Singapore to pick up Jeremy, and Chengdu, where Lu Xin Wu was born, to Beijing for the book The Wedding Party, and from there it's a quick flight back to California. Along the way, we'll toast the podcast in the Bahamas and Mira's podcast, which I'm sure will do very well there and elsewhere. And then we'll toast Bharati, who died much too young, but whose legacy continues. And we'll toast Jeremy's achievement with this translation. And then we'll enjoy our wedding party. And then we'll return, exhausted, our literary trip around the globe, complete, all aboard. Our journey begins after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. OK, 
Okay, we are joined now by the editor of a new book, The Coming Age, Collected English Writings of C. Subramania Bharati, known as the Tamil Mahakavi, or the Supreme Poet, Mirati Sundara Rajan, welcome to the History of Literature. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. So we are going to have a full episode with you coming up shortly where we will talk about this new book and the centrality of Bharati to Tamil literature and his importance to world literature in general. But I wanted to preview this a little bit if we can. And I was wondering if you could give us an example of his poetry in Tamil and English and in English to help us see either what it's like to have a successful English translation of it or something that demonstrates how difficult it is to, or maybe impossible to, to accurately translate. Sure. I think that uh, translation of Bharati has been a huge challenge, mm-hmm. and it's a challenge that, that needs to be met in the future. So I don't think that it's impossible to translate from a language like Tamil, but it's definitely a very special kind of challenge. Bharati himself says, that the distance between English and Tamil as languages is so great that it's a very difficult distance to bridge. Now, Mm. nevertheless, he himself tried to do just that by translating some of his own poems. And I think that he's, he's done a fine job, but really more than that, he's pointed the way towards some uh, landmarks of how we can approach translation effectively in relation to his works and in relation to Tamil in the future. Mm. And uh, the poem that I'm thinking of is actually one called Agni. Agni means fire, a uh, similar root in Latin, by the way. You know, if you take a word like ignite, uh, it, it's a similar root at the origin fire. Mm-hmm. And in this poem, Bharati describes a sacrificial fire in the ancient Indian culture, which was symbolic of various things. This is one of the challenges with Tamil literature and Indian literature is that uh, there is always a symbolic as well as a literal meaning to what's being written. And fire has the symbolism of purifying, of illuminating, and of rising up to reach heaven. The flames rise up to reach heaven, to reach the gods. So in this particular poem, Bharati, in his Tamil uh, poem, talks quite a bit about the philosophical implications of fire and the beauty of fire and so on. And then he makes an English version called Agni, fire, the God will and affirmation. And for any listeners who might be familiar with the Tamil originals, this is a Tamil poem called Agni Stomam. Mm. And I'll just read a little bit to give you a flavor of how he does it. So first of all, it's interesting that he converts it into a sort of a series of prose-style paragraphs. And he writes, Lo, he is rising on the altar of our sacrifice, Agni, the all-will ablaze, and he leaps forth on all sides, chasing the defeated shadows of the dark realm, the flame. Lo, he ascends unto heaven, lifting up his golden arms, and Dawn, the maiden, whose form is knowledge, descends with love to meet him, the flame, the flame. Lo, he opens wide his jaws, the son of strength, the priest of our sacrifice. He has come to drink our clarys and our honeys, well pleased with our works. So just a little flavor of how he approaches the translation. Not Mm. very literal-minded, but rather trying to capture the, the feeling and the sort of thrill of the sacrificial fire as it manifests itself in his original Tamil poem. Unfortunately, the situation is that Bharati translation to date is very underdeveloped, as I mentioned at the beginning. 
And uh, those that have translated him and published translations, for the most part, they're really, really bad. Let me just be perfectly <laughs> frank about that. Right. <laughs> they're really bad. Right. And uh, I think the, the reason that's happened is, is because this whole sort of reckoning with Indian literature of the time and sort of reestablishing the value of writing that people did in Indian languages, that's a post-colonial process that still hasn't really gone to the extent that it needs to. So I think people often think, hey, I love Bharati's poetry. I speak English too. Let me give this a shot and see what I can come up with. Mm. And, uh, you know, and we even see, you know, books being published by respected publishers that, uh, you know, you open it up and the translations are just an absolute travesty of, uh, of the original poems. I could read some bad examples if we had the time, but uh, that may not be the best <laughs> use of your time today, Jack. <laughs> right. Well, we will look forward to hearing more about Bharati and why he is a poet who deserves a better translation than he's gotten so far and his works and his really his fascinating life and his, his fascinating ideas. Professor Sundarat Rajan, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thank you, Jack. Okay, joining me now is Singaporean writer and editor Jeremy Chang, who has translated into English the influential works of Jackie Chan, Gai Ling Yang, and several others. He's here today to talk about his translation of The Wedding Party, a 1985 novel by Beijing novelist Liu Xinwu that has won many prizes and has been a highly influential book in China. It's appearing in English for the first time. Jeremy Tiang, welcome to the History of Literature. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Jack. And please correct any pronunciation that I get wrong. I did live in Taiwan years and years ago and learned Chinese, but I'm afraid I'm probably a little bit rusty. So if <laughs> if, if you hear anything that needs correction, please jump in. Sure. All sounded good so far. Okay, good. Thank you. So let's start with the author. Tell us about Lu Xinwu. Who is he? So he's one of China's foremost essayists, scholars, and fiction writers mm -hmm. um, who's been active in the scene for decades. The Wedding Party, or Zhongkulo in Chinese, is the book with which he made his name. It caused a huge splash in the 80s, won the Mountain Award, which is China's foremost literary prize. And since then, he's not really stopped. He's just kept producing these wonderful books. A few years ago, they put out his collected works in a very handsome 26-volume edition, just to give you a sense of how prolific he is. Hmm. And he's still alive, correct? And he's, if I understand right, he's, he's 79 years old? Uh, he is still alive. And let me look at the back of his book to verify this. Um, he was born in 1942. So what does that make him? 80. He's 80 years old. Hmm. Right. Okay. So let's see. And he's. Uh, oh, no, I, he is 79. Oh, 79. Uh, okay. <laughs> I had, I, embarrassingly, I have forgotten what year it was. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're all going through that a little bit these uh, last couple of years. It's, it's started to blur together. So I'm, I'm interested in how he's been able to write so much. And, and I know he worked for the Chinese government for a while. It sounds like he resigned 
after Tiananmen Square. But does he have a, an uneasy relationship with the government? Is he free to write or has he had difficulties publishing his works? I don't know of any difficulties publishing his work or any direct clashes with the government. Yeah. And that's not the conversation I've been able to have with him. I've only worked with him on this one book and we've never met in person. Right. Okay. So tell us about that a little bit. Did they put you in touch with him by phone, I guess? Uh, by email, actually. Oh, email. Um, okay. Or, or, yes. Although everything's been relayed through his assistant. So I did have some questions in the course of translation, and I sent some after some information, and his assistant spoke to him and relayed everything back to me. But I've had no direct contact with him. Mm. So I think I've got to know the book really well, but I haven't really gotten to know him as a person. Right. Okay. Well, let's. Uh, I want to come back to that because I'm I'm interested in the work that you've done in translation and what it was like to translate it. But let's talk a little bit more about the author and the novel before we get into the details there. I understand that he's regarded as one of the creators of what is called scar literature. Is that a term you're familiar with? And what does that mean to you? So scar literature is a hugely influential genre in China that began shortly after the Cultural Revolution, which spanned from 1966 to 1976 and completely disrupted the country. Mm -hmm. So as you'd imagine, a lot of the literature that was produced after this period was just trying to make sense of what everyone had lived through. Um, particularly as little to no literary production was able to take place while it was actually going on. And because no one had been able to write during this period, everyone had to kind of make sense of it afterwards. And so scar literature was the movement that grew out of that. Um, scar because, you know, whatever you think of it, the, the, the Cultural Revolution was a big scar, is a big scar in, in the country psyche. Mm, yeah. I've heard another possible translation of it is literature of the wounded. Yes, I, I think, um, so the word Shanghan, um, the most direct translation is scar, but you could also translate it as, as wound. And this was writers who were speaking up and talking about hypocrisy and corruption or, or just basically the trauma that the country had gone through with the Cultural Revolution. Mostly the trauma mm -hmm. and, and really just a, a record of what everyone had lived through. It was a period, a very chaotic period. And I think just writing down everyone's experience was crucial because a lot of people had just lived through their own experience of the Cultural Revolution. Yeah. But just to know what was happening across the country and such a big country and get a real sense of everything that had, that they'd be going through collectively was important. Just, just a, a beginning of, of processing that trauma. Yeah. But because... So many people were complicit, right? Everyone was dragged into it. No one could really completely avoid it. No one was completely a victim. Everyone was some blend of aggressor and victim and, and complicit in different ways. So it, was, it wasn't as simple as pointing fingers. It was really just saying, we all went through this together. Here's what happened. And let's just try to make sense of it together. Yeah. That's my reading of it. Yeah. And it was... It was a uh, uh, sort of, I don't know what the right word is for it, a mania or a, and such an upending kind of disruption to society. I mean, here's a, a, a country, a nation that has this thousands of years of history of 
respect for teachers and for education and for literature and the arts. And suddenly in this period, it was, it seems as if those were the targets and, and those were, there was this fierce movement against some of the things that this culture had been proudest of and most respectful of for generations. Well, earlier in the 20th century, of course, China had been through this even greater revolution, I would say, um, Mm. getting rid of the emperor and imperial rule after um, millennia of of having built one dynasty after another. And then suddenly that whole power structure is removed. So you can see how the remnants of of this millennia-old hierarchy lingered in the system and how some people thought that it needed to be completely uprooted. Um, and, and so the result was the upending of society as a whole. Mm, right. Now, was the wedding party, does that fit into this tradition of scar literature, or was Lu doing something different by the time he came to write this novel? I don't actually know if he would classify it as scar literature. Mm-hmm. And I feel that because it doesn't deal directly with the cultural revolution, it doesn't qualify. There are a few flashbacks to what went on in the early part of the 70s, but the novel is in general more interested in looking forward. Um, It's set very firmly on one specific day in 1982, and from his vantage point just a couple of years later, the author is going to say, and then this would happen next, and then this would happen next. And he clearly has this vision, an almost utopian vision, of a China that just becomes freer and freer and more and more open and is able to um, set aside the nightmare of, of what it had recently lived through. Mm, right. And it so it all takes place on one 12-hour day. And I have to tell you, I've had a hard time reading it because my 17-year-old son discovered it on my desk and has been has had his nose buried in it for the last week or so, he will read it at the breakfast table, he reads it at night, and he will laugh out loud at the things that he's finding in there. So it's, uh, it, it's uh, from what I've seen of it, it's, it's almost, a, uh, it's characters who are all trying to make something happen on this, uh, for this working class wedding, but there are things that don't always work out the way that they've hoped. Yes. Uh, well, first of all, that's, I think, the best review I've heard of this yeah. book so far. So thank <laughs> you, you and your 17-year-old son. Um, and, and yes, I, I think that's what makes it so engaging. It's, it's people really trying to make this day special with very limited resources. Hmm. And, and also, in a way, trying to make up for lost time. Oh. Right. Because everyone's had a decade stolen out of their lives, right? That they haven't been able to go to school. They've, they've had to put their lives on hold. And so there's this sense of, of um, making up for that and, and trying to find the joy that, that had been lost during this time. Yeah. And trying to fight for some, you know, just, just some kind of normalcy. Yeah. Right. I haven't uh, read another book like this that I think was written in Chinese, but it reminded me of some books I read out of Eastern Europe at the turn of the century. And I'm wondering, did Lou, did he have a tradition that he was drawing upon? Was he inventing a genre here? Or can you trace back his influences or or does he ever talk about them? Well, uh, Liu is also very well known as a scholar of Hong Lo Mong, the Dream of the Red Chamber. Oh, right, of course. Which um, I, I would say 
everyone in China is at least aware of if they haven't read it. Mm-hmm. And many people have read it multiple multiple times because it is such a foundational text. Yeah. So that, that I would say, is probably the biggest influence. Yeah, sort of a modern-day version of that. Exactly, yes. Um, the, the way it tries to portray the whole of society, just as Dream of the Red Chamber creates the microcosm of this grand family, and then um, present it from beginning to end, from the very highest, most noble person to the lowliest servant. And that's what he's trying to do here. He really wants to present a picture of the entirety of society through very specific portraits of people in one very specific neighborhood. Right. So his latest novel, Kiao Chuang, um, Floating Window, he has compared to the famous painting Qingming Shanghe Tu, or Along the River During the Qingming Festival, um, a Song Dynasty scroll painting that is over five meters long mm. and presents a panoramic view of society, like just everyone in the street celebrating the festival, um, people from all areas of society, rural people, urban people. Um, so that's his ambition, really, to create in book form what this picture does, where you can just see it laid out in front of you, yeah. all society. Right. And in a novel, you can go deeper. You can go inside their minds and and tell their history or their thoughts. And you can include philosophy or, you know, their hopes and dreams and all of the things that you might wonder about or want to know more about. If you're looking at a scroll painting, literature lets you dig deeper like that. Yes. And I think it's marvelous the way he situates us completely inside one person's mind and you're completely drawn into their world you know their backstory you know what they've lived through you know their hopes and dreams and the next chapter you've moved on to a different person and and he implants you just as deeply so by the end you really do have a complete sense of everyone in in this specific locale Right. So we've had some authors as guests who have talked about the difficulties they've had writing fiction in China with censors looking over one's shoulder. How does Lu manage to navigate this? Do you do you feel like he's free to say what he wants or that he is coming at any kind of political commentary or does he just avoid that or does he come at it indirectly or does he seem like he's been able to have a kind of freedom in what he wants to say? Well, with this book particularly, 1985 is probably one of the freest times. Mm, before Tiananmen Square, yeah. Exactly, yes. So I think he took full advantage of that freedom. But at the same time, you'll notice that the one figure from the Cultural Revolution that he chooses to, re- chooses to represent is Madame Mao Jiangqing. Mm. who by that time has been thoroughly disgraced and denounced and is in prison. So in some ways, that's, he's able to find an avatar of the bad decisions that were made during the Cultural Revolution. Yeah. But it's also something that's safe for him to do because she has, by that point, been completely vilified. Um, so I think he navigates this by saying as much as he is able to say, whilst also not crossing the invisible lines that everyone has stopped around. Right. So you maybe couldn't criticize an individual who was still in power, but he seems like he was pretty free to say things like, this family was starving during the Great Leap Forward, there's no question that the party's missteps hit the family hard at all the wrong times, or just to talk generally about the way that society was affected by political decisions. Oh, yes. I, I mean, 
it was at that point in the party line that mistakes had been made. Mm-hmm. So they weren't trying to sweep it all under the carpet. But it was just this finely threaded thing where, yes, the party had made mistakes, but also the real problems of the Great Leap Forward were the natural disasters that had taken place during the time. Um, the real problems of the Cultural Revolution were all Madame Mao's fault. So he does keep. I think he is quite bold in saying, yes, the party had made mistakes, but also he doesn't push it further than that, which mm-hmm. he probably couldn't have. And again, this is something that I'm inferring from having read the book. It's not something I've spoken to him about. Right. But I, I would say it would have been quite much more difficult to critique Mao himself, who at the time and still occupies a relatively sanctified position. Right. Well, in some ways, it's kind of true to how a family might view politics anyway. I mean, unless you have somebody who is very immersed in, in politics or is very opinionated, and, and that might be a, a person who uh, may or may not be a good character to have in your novel, uh, usually it's if they're in there, you want them to be sort of a, a figure of fun or something rather than being uh, overtly preachy or or something. But a family might experience it as, oh, wow, those were tough years, or or that was when uh, everyone was out of work, or that was, you know, that that was that period where we were doing really well and we were hopeful or or something like that. It's it's not as if everyone needs to be as pointed about politics or, you know, my experience in actuality, families just sort of rise and fall with society and they accept a certain extent of it. To a certain extent, they accept it as their fate. Sure. I I mean, you can't really expect the characters to transcend their own context. Right. So I I think he has, Lucino has given the characters in this novel the level of political awareness that you would expect of them at the time. Of like, you know, reasonably well-educated, well-informed Beijingers, this is about where they would be. So I think it would have been artificial to give them a political consciousness that the average person in Beijing wouldn't have had. They're mostly preoccupied with what is possible mm-hmm. and the ways in which they can materially improve their lives. Right. So, yeah, that, that's just that's the scope of their lives. They're mostly working-class characters, and that's what they're most interested in. Okay, so let's move away from the politics of, of Lou and, and the context he was writing in and talk about the characters a little bit. Who are these working-class people, and what kind of cast of characters do we have? What are they like, and what do they want? I think the genius of him setting his book in a Suhayuan courtyard is that all kinds of unlikely people are forced to live in close proximity, mm. forced to get to know each other and try to understand each other, try to support each other as a little community. So it's a whole range of people with very different life experiences who are suddenly having to, for example, share a single faucet, right, which is a source of water for the whole courtyard and, and becomes at one point a source of conflict. But then they also have to work together to maintain these facilities. Mm. and to share this common space. So there are some who have very myopic needs, you know, mostly the couple who work in the factory and just go home each day and really don't care about what's happening outside their apartment or in the wider world. And there are people with grand dreams. One of the characters is actually a translator who has studied in the UK and has these great visions of transforming the whole of Chinese culture and literature. And he's joined in this by a couple of the other young people who live in the courtyard. Um, There are 
some older people who are just trying to get by, who are just trying to hold on to what little they have, who barely navigated the cultural revolution without losing their positions, or who did lose their positions but have managed to claw their way back to a place of respectability and stability. Mm. And I would say at the emotional center of it, as a chef who's been brought in to cook for this wedding and who is just you know, in the background of this novel while everyone else is going through their various conflicts. He's just yeah. churning out this delicious food that keeps appearing on the table until right at the end you find out that he too has his own torments. And through cooking for these people, he manages to find what he's needed all along. He manages to find a family and it ends with them saying, come back and visit us anytime. And mm. that's what he's needed all along. Right. And my <laughs> one character you haven't mentioned that my son did, he was reading and, and suddenly he said, oh, no. And I said, oh, what's happening? And he said, well, and I think he said the mother is is trying very hard to make this the perfect wedding. And it sounded like things were... Uh, there were some obstacles that were presenting themselves in terms of who she was going to have help. Yes. I mean, she's trying to press gang everyone in the neighborhood into <laughs> making this look perfect wedding, but everyone's going through <laughs> their own stuff. So that's a semi-famous opera singer who lives in the courtyard. And the mom is like, well, you have to go and pick up the bride because, you know, it will look good if we have a neighborhood celebrity doing it. <laughs> but the opera singer has her own issues. She's heard that a rival opera singer in the troupe is maybe making a bid for power and star parts, and how can she prevent that? Um, so she has to try and navigate her own stuff while first saying yes and then having to pull out of being in the wedding party. Um, and then for a moment, it's a crisis, and then someone else steps up that, oh, no, it's a neighbor who's a busybody and always says the wrong thing. Is she going to offend the bride's family? Like, each each event leads to a cascade of other choices and, and um, small crises that will build up through the day into a bigger crisis. And it's just so precarious. Like, all through this, they have barely anything. They have a tiny... Um, two-room apartment that they've had to set up these tables in. They've had to put a tent outside as a temporary kitchen for the chefs that they've brought in. And they're going to have a grand wedding, even though, you, you know, everyone's just kind of sitting in the small room pressed up against the walls with all the other furniture shoved aside, just trying to have as grand a banquet as they can manage in the circumstances. And, and the way it's all barely holding together is... I think one of the joys of the book, like they are going to have a wedding and it is going to be as good a wedding as they can manage, but it's also not going to be the wedding of their dreams because mm. that's not possible in the circumstances. And so it's how tantalizingly close she gets to this this beautiful day that she's projected onto these, these impossible surroundings. Mm. It's such a great idea for a novel, especially one that expands outward like this and, and takes a, a narrow slice of time, but lets us see all different aspects of it and all different angles. I mean, when I got married, it it is kind of like, I feel like it was sort of like the fog of war or something where suddenly people would just show up and, and start taking pictures and you'd say, oh yeah, we that's the photographer we hired. I forgot to double check to make sure she was coming, but there she is and she's doing her job. And after it was all over, my wife actually said to me, wait, did the string quartet ever show up? 
And I said, yeah, they were there. They were playing, they were playing, but it was like, there's so many people and people are coming and going and you have a, all these things that you think you're going to be kind of in charge of and it will be very well organized. There's just so much happening all at once that you're just kind of at the mercy of events as they proceed. And and if you spend too much time talking to one particular person, you might miss an entire aspect of the of the day or the wedding that you were planning to focus on and see. And suddenly people are leaving and you realize you never even got to say hello to them. And it's just a uh, a very chaotic kind of event. Yes, and, and it just passes in a fog and you just have to get through it the best yeah. you can. <laughs> the worst thing you can have is is strong expectations that you will be presiding over something that you control. Yes, and, and that's very much the mother's role. Like the, the actual couple are in a daze of their own and just trying to get through it. <laughs> um, and, and it's the mother of the groom who has these grandiose visions. Um, that she's trying to fulfill, and that's where a lot of the comedy comes from. Yeah. So I I was a little surprised by how playful the narrative was. Was it fun to translate, and, and does the humor and, and high spirits, does it translate easily from Chinese to English? There were definitely a couple of bits where I thought, ooh, this needs to be slightly snappier. Mm. Um, just humor works a little differently. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think in the English language, humor is more dependent on punchlines. Oh, um, and the yeah. joke has to have a button. Whereas I, I feel like Chinese humor is more situational. So there were these setups that I found really hilarious. But um, for them to really land in English, I thought I just need to sh- just give it a little button to sharpen the ending so that there is a, a, a kind of laugh line for the joke. Um, that's what will make it land. So there are moments where I had to translate the humor and, and not just the words um, to make sure it was as funny in English as I had found it in Chinese. But right. It, it, you're right, it is absolutely hilarious in the original. Um, and, and I so hope I brought at least some of that across. Yeah. So what is your relationship to Chinese literature? I, I understand you grew up in Singapore or you, you're at least described to me as Singaporean. Yes, I, I am Singaporean. I grew up in Singapore, which is a multilingual country. So I've always been bilingual. And I was exposed to both English and Chinese literature at school. So to to me, these are things that I've always had. My mind is not something I came to later in life. Right. So yeah, it's it's something that's very close to me. And was Lu Xinwu a writer that you have been reading and writing for a long time, or was this fairly new to you? I was aware of him. I hadn't actually read him before this, embarrassingly, or, or maybe not. Um, I, I knew of The Wedding Party, but I hadn't read the book. I had seen the TV adaptation. Mm. Was that produced in China? or It was. It was filmed in the mid-80s, um, quite soon after the book was written, because um, yeah. the book was such a big hit when it came out, which was actually a huge help to me with the translation, because it had been filmed actually on location at the time just re-watching it and then seeing what everyone was wearing and looking at the courtyard and how the wedding banquet actually played out helps me have a really concrete idea of, of what was being described in the book. Because, right. um, you know, it, it was a different time and place. I, I've been to Beijing quite a lot, but not in the mid-80s, and it was a very different city then. Yeah. Um, so just seeing how people lived and, and dressed and behaved and spoke... Was, was able to really ground me um, when I was creating the translation. Right. And has the, does the language 
feel dated now? Is there slang that feels like it it roots it in a particular time period, or was that uh, is, is it not? Has the language not changed that much? Oh, the language has definitely changed. Mm-hmm. But I I would say roughly the same amount as it has in in English. Mm-hmm. You know, slang has changed since the eighties, but but not a huge amount, not unrecognizably. So rather than trying to find anything too specific, which I think would create the wrong resonance, it's like if I tried to root it in mid-80s American slang, I, I think that would then be too specific to the U.S. Mm, right. So it's more a question of avoiding anything that would make it feel too contemporary. Right, right. So that it people are aware that it's this period of the 80s, which is important Historically, but also I'm imagining things like it's important that this is before the Internet and before cell phones and and things like that that would answer a lot of plot questions and and so on for readers. Yes, very much so. And, you know, I don't feel like I needed to emphasize that. It's already there in the book, right? As soon as you see someone queuing up at a payphone, you're like, okay, yeah, this is a very specific time and place. Right. Right. So what types of questions did you have for the author that you were able to ask his assistant? Uh, were they specific things you were wondering about the characters or were they issues of translation that you needed some guidance on? Yeah, I, I mean, I feel like he's laid out the motivations of the characters beautifully. Like mm-hmm. I had no questions there. I, I knew exactly why everyone was doing everything that there weren't any moments that someone said something else, like, why do they say that? Which, which sometimes has happened to me. With this book, I thought everything made perfect sense. The whole plot was just beautifully constructed. So my, my questions were all much more specific. And they were all to do with things like um, this type of cigarette that he's smoking. Is, is it meant to show that he's, um, mm. you know, is it meant to be a bit fancy? Or is it meant to be quite a common brand? Um, right. This type of food. What, what is it exactly? I can't quite work it out from the description. Right. Was, yeah, just, just really little details like that that yeah. Um, yeah. helped flesh out the, the time and place. Right, because it would signify a lot if someone was supposed to be wearing a, a ring that was expensive and tasteful might be different from one that's a little bit cheap and gaudy. And if you're not getting that from the language, you would want to make sure that you were capturing it in order to be true to the character in the moment. Exactly. Yes. Um, and, and just little, um, really visceral details to help make it feel concrete. Just that, you know, there's this type of food. Should I say she ate it or can I say she slurped it? Mm, right, right. So did you get a sense that he's excited about this appearing in English? Or, I mean, it, it seems like it's been a long time in coming for a book that's so successful in China, it must be quite something for him almost 50 years later to know that it's going to be published in English. I mean, he is very celebrated in China. So I don't know how important this has been mm, to him. Uh, right, because right. we haven't had yeah. that kind of, yeah. But also just because of the lack of direct contact. His, his assistant passed on the answers to the questions, but yeah. not really anything personal. So I actually don't know how he's feeling about it, but I'm, I'm sure he's happy about it or he would have agreed for this to go ahead. Right. And yeah, we'll, we'll have to see, but I'm, you know, I, I am excited that English language readers can finally see what the fuss is all about. Right. 
Well, if my son is any indication, the last thing he said, I said, okay, I've got to have that book now because I'm interviewing the translator today. And he said, he handed it to me and he said, just don't lose my page, okay? So, oh, that is amazing. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I would say it's, uh, the, the translation is, is a success, and I'm guessing that the English readers in English who find it will uh, enjoy it. The book is called The Wedding Party by Lu Xin Wu, available now in bookstores everywhere. Jeremy Chang, thank you so much for joining me on The History of Literature. Thank you for having me, Jack. It's been a pleasure. Okay, there we go. Wasn't that good? I hope you enjoyed that. Exhausting but exhilarating, too. My thanks to Jeremy Chang for joining me. Please do check out The Wedding Party, the novel he translated. And my thanks to Professor Rajan. Please check out The Coming Age and her podcast, Bharati 100. She will be back for more about that wonderful poet and thinker, Bharati, soon. I cannot wait. And now it's time for us to conclude our journey and return to our beds. I have a new pillow, by the way. What a big update in my life. It's about as, it's about as big as it gets these days. <laughs> but since my favorite time of day has become bedtime, it's a nice development having a new pillow. Maybe it's nothing to brag about, but after a trip around the world, rest can be good too. You can't always live the dream. Sometimes it feels good to dream it instead. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening and see you next time.